Welcome to the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of Brian, your host, and his guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested. So please consume at your own risk. Now, here's Brian. Thank you for joining me on this bright and amazing day. Today's episode is sponsored by Legacy Group Real Estate in Elkridge, Utah, and Gertzen Clothing Company in Lehigh, Utah. I want to thank them for their continued friendship, support, and professionalism. Ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening, welcome back to the show. My next guest is Mark Hugentobler. After his long and successful career as a coach and high school administrator, he was, quote-unquote, sentenced to prison by his local school board. He became academy principal within the Central Utah Correctional Facility in Gunnison, Utah. Arriving at the island of misfit toys, he soon recognized the vast unexplored opportunities to help inmates, providing hope and purpose through education. He also gained the viewpoint seeing prison life through an inmate's eyes. During his eight years inside, he saw enrollment in the prison academy jump from 200 to nearly 1,200 students enacted firsthand a model of the change that is possible in a broken system, if someone would just listen. All right, Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being had. (laughs) It's good to have you on the show, finally. I know it's been a while. We're trying to negotiate this and get our lives to to match up. Tell us your story. Uh, all, All my friends are felons. You have a book and a podcast of the same name, and it's been fascinating listening to some of those episodes about... Some of these guys that are getting into trouble but making things right. Well, this has been a unique experience for me. I was born, I grew up in a white picket fence life. My dad was, uh, my dad was a dentist. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I had five siblings, uh, older sister who passed, and then four brothers. Great friends. Grew up in a small community, hunting, fishing, uh, motorcycle riding, uh, boating, skiing, snow skiing, uh, everything. Uh, I grew up in a, just a perfect world. Had good teachers, good friends, good coaches. I love sports. Uh, for the most part, once we got to be about 12 years old, our, our lives revolved around football and basketball and track. And, and uh, so it was a good life. Never really involved in serious criminal behavior <laughs> other than that you, that you were least <laughs> caught for <laughs> other than just teenage shenanigans uh but we you know we never hurt anybody we just i never went to court never got in trouble never in juvenile detention or anything like that so i grew up in a really great place we we uh grew up and did our thing we all went our separate ways most of my friends went on missions i went on a mission to france um, japan South America, all over the place. Uh, we were a pretty tight group. I got home, uh, went to Snow College, played a little basketball, met my wife. She came from ultra ultra conservative. I came from a very conservative world and still am a conservative person, I think. Did you grow up in Ephraim? I grew up in Monticello, okay, little town. Monticello that's what, that's what I was okay. describing. My wife's from Ephraim. So she's from the city. <laughs> Never thought compared of it that to, way, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, she grew up very, very, very conservative. 
Uh, and so, and, I, and I, I grew up, you know, we were conservative, but my family's motto is go big, big or go home. And, and, and our slogan is why the hell not? You know, that's, that's right. a great slogan. <laughs> that's just the, the kind of the way we grew up. And it wasn't, we weren't dangerous. We weren't scary. We were just kind of nuts. Risky. Yeah. And, 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 uh, my wife grew up in a why world. Why would you do that world? <laughs> why? 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 <laughs> so we were kind of an odd mix. Uh, I, you know, and anyway, we got married and, and I always wanted to be a coach and she did not want to be a coach's wife. Uh, it's an interesting story. She was the good friend of the basketball coach's daughter in Manta High School. And she was the, so she signed on to be the stat, stat girl. So she would go to the games and take stats and help her friend who was the coach's daughter. And she would sit behind the team and during that experience, the fans were just berating the coach, just every all over stuff. And she swore, she literally swore that she would never be married to a basketball coach. And we started dating. She knew I, I was on the team. She knew I loved basketball. Farther we got down the thing, we got a little more serious and started talking about our lives, you know, future, what I wanted to do. And, well, I want to be a basketball coach. And she she wasn't sure that she wanted to move forward. She wanted to be a nurse. And I guarantee being a nurse is a lot harder, more difficult frontline job than being a basketball coach. So we picked a couple of service-oriented jobs that were kind of brutal. I uh, went to Weber. Just I actually went back to my hometown to be the, be the coach. And I did that for there at Manta High School for 23 years. And we were just kind of living the lives that we'd chosen. And it was all good. Uh, we were, I was very successful. We had, in fact, uh, just this last week, I went to Monticello to celebrate our 30th year reunion for our championship team down there. So that's how long I've been doing this. Um, but we were pretty successful all the way through. And I finally wore out and retired and got into administration and was just continuing my life. However, as a high school basketball coach, especially in a small town, you, you what do you want to say enemies? You make enemies. You make a lot of people like, like you and respect you, but there's a lot of people who question your integrity often. And, you know, you have to cut do, kids. Is that related to you not put, uh, giving their kids enough playtime? Yes, or me cutting, you know, getting cut from the team or discipline situations. Uh, sometimes, it's all personal. Yeah. Yeah, it's all I'm according to a parent's I'm a mean, perspective. I'm a mean, ignorant yeah. person that doesn't understand. Anyway, there was a couple of the school board members who I were not fans of mine. They were not they did not appreciate me. Uh, what's worse, the, the the principal who I was working for, I was the assistant principal after I quit, stopped coaching. We didn't see eye to eye in the education world. Uh, from my perspective, he wanted to sit in his office and do paperwork and push things out. And I didn't care about paperwork. I hated it. I wanted to go be with the kids and with the teachers and build relationships. And that was my perspective. I think his perspective might be different. But he kind of thought I was trying to undermine him. And and and, and I absolutely not true. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm loyal to a fault. Um, but anyway, he and I didn't see eye to eye. And one day in the spring, I'm just finishing up my paperwork uh, for my tenants and all that stuff at the end of the year that you have to do. And the superintendent called me and says, Mark, come to my office. I need to talk to you. So I, I make the, I jump in my pickup pick and make the three-block drive to the school district office. 
And I go up in the superintendent, and I can see there's something wrong. He says, Mark, you're being sent to prison. And that's exactly what he said. <laughs> you're like, ooh, is my, <laughs> my teaching that bad? <laughs> and he, was, he, was, he felt really bad. He, he wasn't in favor of the thing, but he said, the school board and the principal, they don't want you to high school anymore. So you're going to go to the prison to be the principal. People don't realize, in the state of Utah at least, that the, the local school district is responsible for the prison education system. So like here in, in Salt Lake, when, this, when the prison was in Draper, uh, the Jordan School District was responsible for the prison education programs. So Jordan School District teachers and principals went in and provided the educational experience. Now it's the Salt Lake School District that does the prison out west of the, the airport. Well, there it's the San Pete School District because the prison's in Gunnison in our school district. And it wasn't uncommon for teachers to go in for a while and come out. In fact, uh, the man that I replaced as principal there, uh, he, he came out and went to the junior high. Then a few years later, went to the assistant superintendent and is now the superintendent. So it wasn't uncommon for people to go in there for a reprieve, sometimes for discipline. Sometimes they chose to. I didn't want to. I didn't see anything good inside that prison that I needed to go spend any of my time with. I wanted to, I spent, you know, I grew up, I love my coaches. Um, I love the experience of being a basketball player and a football player. And, and I just wanted to sh give that to kids. And that's kind of what I did. And I had no interest in going. So what was your perspective on the prison and the people inside there? What, why didn't you want to go? They're worthless derelicts. Because that's what you were taught. Yeah, that's what I see. That's what I think. You know, I grew up in this white picket fence world that sees... Why, were they, why did they make those decisions? How could you hurt someone that way? How could you violate somebody that way? How could you make that kind of, how could you be that stupid? How could you be that, that mean and that uncaring? And so that's my, that was my perspective. And, and, and I also thought that the correction system was doing all it could to help them. And actually, they were, actually correcting? Yeah, actually doing corrections. And so I thought these people, they're not worth, they're not worth my time. I felt myself more important, I guess, or more valuable than, than that. And, and I was just, I was not happy. Do you think that is because, like, just our culture or your parents or other parents, do, you, do, you do we pick that up from everything in society? Because, I mean, pr movies don't d depict people in prison very favorably. Is it a, it's not, well, I guess we'll come to find out it's not a reality. It is for some. That there are there are some derelicts. There are some that are not correctable. I would yeah. agree with that. Uh, you know, I think it's just, I think it's just exposure. I think it's just, I, again, how growing up in my normal, my normal is, Mark, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't don't use drugs, you know, don't have illicit sex. That's the world I grew up in, and that's my normal. And and these people were doing all of those things. <laughs> And I'm going, that's, they're, that's it's their a choice. Normal. It was a choice for me. Why isn't it a choice for them? They're, they jumped up, they jumped ship. And so, they, I don't know, it's was, it was it just a distance factor. I think if we, if we kind of get ahead of ourselves, if they look, if, if you grew up in West Valley and you ended up in prison and you looked at the people on the East Bench, most of the, those people from West Valley look at a lot of those people on the East Bench like they lied and cheated and stole to get what they had. They don't realize their normal is, and I, again, I don't mean to insult anyone, but a lot of times these guys that are in prison, their normal is lie, cheat, steal, take advantage of, victimize, get what you want. 
More that's of a, more of a me culture. That's a normal. And so they think the people on the East Bench did that to get what they have. And got away with it. Uh-huh, and got away with it. They And that's not 100% true, but that's a... That's a, a generalized a gen- stereotype. A, yeah. Just like we make the stereotype to, from west from east to west, they make that stereotype from west to east. And so, yeah, that was my mindset. You know, and the, the superintendent says, Mark, go, do a couple years, do your time. A couple okay. years, these... These school board members will be unelected, and then we'll get you back out in the public education system like you want to be. So I put my tail up between my legs, and I went to prison to do my time. And uh, at first when I got there, I was told that, you know, you go to the training for the, from corrections, and everybody's a manipulator, and everybody's evil, and everybody wants to take advantage of you, and they're dangerous, and you got to be careful, and don't, don't be alone with them, and don't talk to them except for when you have to. And th- that's the— How dare you don't— don't con- dare- don't connect with them. Don't connect. Absolutely don't it, connect. Well, because you get in their spell, right? Yep. That's exactly right. And and I got there and I didn't know what I was going to do because I'm kind of a high energy person. I don't, you know, I don't sit back and I'm not a, I'm not a very good fisherman. My grandpa used to take me fishing and he would get pretty frustrated because I couldn't sit still long enough. And I still can't. That's called meditating with a pole. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not very good at that. So anyway... Uh, a couple months I'm there and I meet a guy named Charles Gordon, who's an inmate and he, he, we start talking and then I bring him into my office and we start talking and it's an interesting experience in Gunnison. There's a corridor with 14 classrooms and an administration area for faculty. And so it's just like a school. So the, the inmates come in and they go to different classes, science or math or English or whatever, and they go to their classes. Well, my... My office was a fishbowl on the corner, right in the beginning of the corridor. And I bring Charles into my office with the door open, windows everywhere. And we started talking for a couple hours a day. One of the officers said, Mark, you can't do that. I said, what can I do? You can't have inmates in your office like sitting down and talking like that. And I said, why? Well, because this was not done. I said, okay, but is it, I said, tell me why. Well, it's dangerous. Keep, okay. Keep the why, the why, keep going down the why yeah. rabbit hole. Why? Yeah. And and I said, look, look, I'm a pretty big guy. Charles is not a big guy, at least not tall. He's a pretty well-built guy. But I said, you're right there. You're literally right across the hall. You can see into the window. I said, my door's open. I'm not afraid. Well, you're not supposed to do that. And I said, well, don't tell me that because everything, every time somebody tells me I'm not supposed to, I can't do something, I'm going to do it. <laughs> you're, you don't know me very well. Anyway, uh, that just kind of keeps going, and I keep talking, to, working with Charles, and then we invite some other guys in. And all I'm doing is getting to know him. And I remember sitting there thinking, man, you know, he reminds me of the guy I go golfing with. He, he reminds me of the buddy I like to go skiing with. He reminds me of a kid play basketball for me. <laughs> and I'm going, these people are real people. And, and I'm just baffled. I remember one time, probably about four months, I went home, maybe five months, and I started talking to my wife like this. She says, Mark, what's wrong with you? What's going on? And I said, honey, these, these are real people. They're not the people I thought they were. They're not. And, and I'm, she's going, wow. They're not the monsters. They're you. not the monsters in the closet that, I, that I'd always thought they were. And not that anyone had taught me that or anybody had said, Mark, beware of the evil. It's just something that was created in my mind because my normal doesn't understand their normal. And their normal's wrong. They need to fix. <laughs> it's yeah. a bad normal, but, but my normal never understood that. And so next thing you know, we start 
talking about what we can do to, to change the world because there was no hope. One of the things I first recognized when I got there is it's a hopeless situation. The inmates have no hope. There's just no purpose in their lives. Uh, the officers, no hope. I mean, can you imagine being a person who goes to a prison and babysits grown men? I mean... <laughs> well, years ago, I was in between careers and lost in terms of employment trying to grab it at anything. I, I'd been in a 20-year career as a graphic designer and quit that. So I was trying out for the Utah Highway Patrol. I was in that process for six months. Eventually, I got voted off the island. But <laughs> the last meeting, they said, yeah, you should probably just go work at corrections. And I was just like, oh, hell no. That's uh, no way could I do that. I had another friend who did it, corrections for 25 years. And... Seem to be fine with it, but I was like, I'll blow my brains out if I do that. Because that's the mentality I have. It's like, I don't want to be around monsters and people that are going to jump me. And I had this all the same perceptions yeah. that you had. And it's, it's, I came to realize that my perceptions were absolutely wrong. You know, I, in fact, people ask me, Mark, were you ever afraid? I got to the point very early in my career, maybe five, six months in, where I went into every part of the prison except for the 23-hour lockdown area. And when I say go in, I went into the housing unit. I go in, walk right into the where they all meet and have dinner, and mm -hmm. there the cells are. And I'd sit down at tables and talk to them. And I, um, once I got accustomed to it, I, I I felt safer. I felt safer there than I did at the high school. I really did. I I had no the high school. I was worried about some big football player I had to prove his manhood. So he was gonna take me down and show me, you know. Yeah. And that wasn't gonna end well for one of us, probably for me. <laughs> But I never had that uh, one exception. I, in fact, maybe I could tell that story. When I first went in, it was probably two, three months. Uh, I was in a, I was in a, the Gale housing unit, which doesn't matter. But anyway, I was in a housing unit talking to a captain because I started to go out and reach out to captains and lieutenants in the housing units to try to create some kind of a relationship because that's, that's how I function is I make relationships and try to make them fit together. And, and I was leaving, and I was, I was leaving walking towards the the round uh, where all the housing units come out together, it's kind of like a hub, mm -hmm. and there's a slider, a door that slides, and usually that slider, if it was closed, they see me coming and they'd open it. Well, now the slider was open as I was walking towards it, it closed. Uh, that was weird. So I pushed a little buzzer button. I said, "Hey, what's going on?" He said, "There's a control move. They're moving an inmate that's shackled, and so everybody has to stay out of the hub." And so I'm just standing there, and it takes four or five minutes. While it's happening, the hallway's filling up with guys, with inmates. There's not a cop anywhere. And there's a, there's a slider to my front, and to get back to 20 or 30 guys, it's a gauntlet to get back to the captain's office, and I'm just sweating blood. Thinking, oh, crap, this isn't fun. And that slider eventually opened, and I walked out and found a, the first guy in blue I could find, and we had a 10-minute conversation while I calmed down because I was honestly nervous. It wasn't probably three, four, five months later that exact scenario happened. And this time, I, looked, I saw guys that I knew. I started talking to them. And before I knew it, I was just chatting with all of them. It was like I was talking to my friends. And one of them, a couple of them, we walked uh, clear through the yard, probably three, probably half a mile together, talking the whole way out in the yard, just them and me. And, and I, it was when I got back to my office, I realized how my world had changed. 
and how my paradigm had shifted and how I realized that these were, they were good people. What was different about them, and not all of them because some of them still use drugs, but what was different about them is they weren't high. They weren't, their, their addiction had not taken over their life while they were in prison, and they were just as normal as you and me. That is one, well, and you, now you humanized them. I did. And cared about them, and that's probably something that they didn't get a lot of in their life, which is why they ended up there. That, yes. Um, one of the things we tried to do in our program is create trust, because they didn't trust me. Even when we started expanding our program, we had 247 students when I got there. Within two years, we doubled that. And by the time I left, we had 1,100. Eight years later, we'd had 1,100 students in our school. And what we had to do is we had to build trust, and we had to build hope. And as we did those two things, uh, they started to trust us, and they started to believe us, and they started to find purpose, and they started to find direction. And it was really a very powerful experience. Because you saw potential on them that they had probably given up on. In their minds, they're completely unlovable and unredeemable. You know, we, we talk about us looking at them as being unredeemable. They often and almost always look at themselves as unredeemable people. I mean, they, they don't, they, I don't want to be too graphic, but if the, I, I met murderers, guys that have killed people. Well, I guarantee that those guys wake up every morning regretting that and hating, hating themselves for having done that. Now, I can't speak for the ones that are still on drugs and still, but the ones that I worked with, they had real remorse for what they'd done and they owned it so much so that they hated themselves and found themselves completely unlovable and unrede unredeemable. And we were giving them hope and we were giving them feelings of being redeemable and having value and being trustworthy and all of the little things that we take for granted in our lives. Um, and it made, it changed them. It really, they, their behaviors changed, their attitudes changed, uh, their effort changed. And it was, it was marked, it was a visible transformation. Now you mentioned that you had like 1,100 students when you, when you left. How long has it been since you've been out of the system? I left in 2019. Okay. I left in the summer before the pandemic. That was my last day. And I believe in your story you said... Now that same program that you built is no longer there. Completely gone. Completely gone. Eleven hundred. Tell me, tell me what, what's going on with that? Why did that happen? Before I start, I want to throw out a caveat. I am, I am, I really appreciate police officers, cops, corrections officers. I believe anybody who's willing to do that job, put their life on the line, to to protect society and to lock people up, crim criminals, take them out of society. I, I respect them, and I appreciate them. I don't think we should handcuff them. I don't think we should second-guess them. They have to go into ugly, ugly situations and make split-second decisions, and sometimes they make mistakes. But God forbid they're human. I think very seldom do they make mistakes with malice. They do. I'm sure that happens, but I think it's very, very seldom. So I really appreciate cops. I think people who commit crimes, no matter the, the cause, whether it's mental illness or drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, I think they should be locked up because they committed a crime. They hurt someone else. Uh, they took away someone else's rights and someone else's freedoms. So I'm, I'm not at all a, in favor of limiting a police officers' ability to do their job, nor am I in favor of not putting guys in prison. Yeah, that, not holding people accountable that's for their right, actions. Right. Yeah. Uh, I say that because I want to—most I, I, of the people— most of the officers I worked with in Gunnison Prison 
were good people. They had good families. They had good hearts. They were, they, they were just caught in a broken system. And the system is very punitive. And it's from the top down. And it's, they lock them up and throw away the key. It's the same perception I brought in. They're, they're derelicts. They're terrible people. They've hurt people. They, de they deserve nothing. They should get nothing. Um, another angle is, well, my kids don't get a free education. Why should they? My kids don't get this help. Why should they? So I think there's a lot of different things at play, but, but by and large, that's an attitude that's very prevalent. So when I was there, I was pushing it. I was, I was in the warden's office. I was in the dec uh, executive director's office, who's the boss over the wardens. I went to the captain's housing unit captains. I went all over the place and I sold my, sold my wares. I sold them what we were doing. And at first they put up with me. Um, as we got going, the housing unit captains and lieutenants really started to buy in because they saw their behavior change. These guys weren't just sitting in the house playing cards and ping pong. They were coming out and learn, you know, going to school and learning and improving themselves. And, I, you know, self-esteem, everything changes. Attitude changes. But without me there, my, my biggest job in this whole process was to have ideas and to, and to clear the road. <laughs> that was my job. The, the inmates, uh, the tutors they call them, which is an inmate that helps, you know, an inmate tutor, and the faculty were the ones that did all the work. When I left, the new guy had no interest. In fact, <laughs> the new guy was the principal at the school when I worked at the high school. He, the one that sent me to prison, he followed me to prison and took my job. But he didn't want it. But he did, Well, I think he just wanted to escape because he thought it'd be a nice, easy job because everyone told him it was. What he didn't realize is I'd made it so it wasn't a nice, easy job. It was the busiest job I've ever, I'd ever had. But he got there and he didn't care. And so he just let, he wouldn't go, he wouldn't go, you know, plow the road. He wouldn't do the work that was required to keep the programs going. So they, they slowly died. Um, then, then the next guy came a couple years later. He really didn't care. Cared even less. Cared even less, if you can believe it. And corrections sent an officer into education that we had officers to guard guards in our our corridor who was i believe his whole assignment was to dismantle education and it's gone it's not even we had we built we had about 140 computers that we bought that we you know i wrote grants and got them for for inmate use so that they could learn how to use computers and they could do word processing and they could uh, do all kinds of different things they weren't connected to the internet but they were connected to an intranet. So yeah. we were connected to each other. And uh, all that's gone. And I'd like to know where it went because that's technically school district property. <laughs> and it never went back to school district. <laughs> um, but it's all gone. There's nothing there. Have you called out these two guys that followed your footsteps and said, what the hell? What did you? Why did you guys do this? N not really because it's not my place. Who, who am I to? You can't. You, I mean, you know them personally. I do. Have you ever reached out to them personally and said, hey, why did you let this sink? No, I never did. One Do of them want didn't. want to? You know, I was disgusted. Uh, but that would that would create absolutely nothing but more animosity. Uh, you know, what What are they going to do about it? They don't care. They just make them so they don't like me anymore. And I don't care if they don't like me or not, but I just didn't see any value in it. I have addressed it with a new... Uh, executive director, and we we'll get to that story in just a minute. But 
I've addressed it there, and I'm keeping. I've, I've continued to work in that sp in the space to try to recreate. I don't know if we're going to really want to recreate that part of the that education program because it would take someone that knows how to plow the road to do it. Um, but we've done some. I'm doing some. We're doing some other things. I go in the prison every Monday morning and work with inmates in a different program called uh, Captain Your Story, where we go in and teach life skills. And it's not a typical life skills program. It's a model of making model of living and making positive choices being a creator rather than a victim. You know, it, it's really pretty sad. And I don't blame I don't blame the, the, the two men that followed me as much as I blame corrections. They they claim in their mission statement, they claim that the whole second half of their mission statement is partnering with with other agencies to provide corrective opportunities for inmates. The whole second half of their mission mission statement has says that. And here they had an amazing program. And I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but it was pretty cool. Hey, if you built it, you built it. Hey, well, you know, we, we went far beyond secondary education. We, we, we provided a cute computer coding camp. So I had my son and an inmate who was a coder create this self-driven program to let them learn how to write computer code right there in the prison. We had a, we created a building trades program. We created, we had a the Snow College sent two people in to interview one of our inmates to see if he was qualified to teach a business business classes. So we had an inmate who was had a master's degree from BYU uh, teaching business classes to inmates, getting Snow College credit. I mean, we were doing stuff like that all the time. It was just very innovative. It was all free. It didn't cost corrections anything. It didn't really cost, it didn't cost the state anything. Uh, I wrote some grants and got some federal grant money. Uh, but it was, we were really doing some fun things. And Corrections didn't want to keep it. They wanted to destroy it. Because it was, too, well, I don't know, I can't say why. I can speculate why. But it was outside of their punitive You can speculate on this show. So I can speculate. speculate? Yeah, speculate. Why do you think they uh, didn't want it? It was too much work. And if they would have put that work in, guys would actually get rehabilitated? It was just too much work for today. It was, it was too much work. It was too much organization. Too many guys were out of their cells. Too many, we were, we were having, in their mind, we were running a free-for-all. Because they didn't realize that as these men were changing, they, were, they didn't want to be criminals anymore. They were coming to school to learn and to grow and to improve. But in their mind, they were coming to school so they could pass drugs and they could pass notes and they could pass, they could do their criminal crap. Which, my guess is a lot of that goes on. So there's oh, some truth. It's, yeah, like yeah. this is the, that's the only place in the prison that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, but but it wasn't especially with the elite programs. We had a night program where we didn't have any teachers there. We had one officer, and we ran eighty students that were taking college classes, and it was a very elite program. And you had to you had to qualify by your behavior and where you lived and a lot of different things to be able to be eligible for these these college level courses. And we ran that for four years without a without a hitch. And we got a new warden, and the warden says, we're not doing that anymore. You can only have 20 students. And I said, why? Well, because it's a security risk. We've been doing it for, we've been doing it for four years without a single hitch. Well, but they could be doing all kinds of stuff you don't know about. I says, everything we do, we trust, we, we trust but verify. I follow up at everything, and there's never been a problem. What does the officer say? They say they've seen a problem, but they shut us down. And that, and that was actually done before I left with a new warden. 
They didn't shut it clear down. We could have 20 students. But there's a lot of difference between 20 and 80 students being involved in those programs. Because they still have the, these are thugs. Oh, yeah. Animals. And, yeah. and you're just lucky they haven't done anything stupid yet. That's, That's right. That's mentality. And, and what they don't realize is what we did, you know, I, I ran that program like I ran my basketball teams. I realized early on that if I wanted to be a successful coach, I had to empower kids. And I had to trust them. I had to verify. And I had to follow up. But I had to trust them. And when they were on the floor, I had to trust them. And then when we were in practice, I would teach them. And we did the same thing here. We, we, we would teach them, but then we would put them out on the floor and we'd trust them. And we'd expect them to perform. And they owned it. And when you own something, you take care of it. And that's what they didn't understand is they just don't understand that principle. Inmates owned that program. And they took care of it. They didn't want it to go away. And they, they policed themselves. You know, uh, they they made sure that there wasn't crap going on. And they would tell me. Because they knew it would jeopardize their this new their, world of theirs. Yeah. They didn't want it going away. If they had problems, they would tell me. And I would address the problems. And I would I would address the problems at the night pretty harsh. You know, during the day, I'd be a little soft. But if some guy was coming in goofing off at night, and I found out about it, <clears throat> which I usually did, I would just go say, listen, I know you've been coming to this class. Appreciate you coming. I appreciate you wouldn't come anymore. You've been just, you've been removed from this opportunity. And word spreads. <laughs> you know, I, I used to say we would shoot a hostage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is, that's pretty motivating. I know that's pretty graphic, but. That's all right. But we would. We would just, and, and we would have a guy. They broke the rules and maybe it was a small, small, small infraction. I'd say, you're done. Sorry. Good luck to you. Come and see me next year. I might, I might reconsider. And they'd be out for a whole year. Uh, yep. And interestingly enough, most of them would come back. It was very successful. And we, we just, it was sad to see it go. Uh, I wasn't surprised to see it go. In fact, everybody told me, Mark, when you leave, this is gone. And I said, oh, come on, you guys can keep it going. Because uh, I, I left the pieces in place, even without the principle, to keep it running. And it's gone. Uh, they, they, fired the, they fired one principal. Actually, there's been three in there, I guess, since I left. The second one, they fired him because they claimed that he was doing something illegal. And I don't believe for a second. I know the man very well. Don't believe for a second he was. Um, this cop that they sent into, into control, control education uh, saw to it that he was fired. Another teacher was fired. And they cleaned out the whole place. And I, I know that neither of those people did anything worth being fired over. Did they make a mistake? Maybe. I don't know. But there wasn't anything belligerent or mali malicious. So it's really pretty sad. It's a sad state of affairs. Now, were you in touch with other prisons around the country <clears throat> talking about what you were doing? Were, are they doing, were they doing something similar to this? Or is this just a one-off? It's a one-off. There are programs around the country that are innovative and doing some neat things. Not very many. But this is kind of a one-off thing. I worked a lot with the county jails. Uh, a lot of state inmates go to county jails. And this, this county is paid to house them. And so I went to Purgatory, for example, down in St. George and down to Kane County Jail. I went to San Juan County Jail trying to help them establish programs that would help inmates. But no, I never worked with anybody outside the state. And they're really, I've done so a little bit since, but they're really, most of any other programs that are out there are pretty much one-off. Is this, you know, we call it the correctional system, but we're coming to find out it's maybe not that not so much no not at all 
And I've got a young friend who's about to be released from federal in April. And the things he's telling me are just dark and horrific. I, he hasn't told me one good thing about his time and how they just treated like animals and the inhumanity of the guards. And again, I'd love to talk to a guard or correctional officer who does that and get their perspective as well. Cause I'm sure there's two sides to this. I'm just getting one right now, but he says just, they're just, you know, treated like animals and these guys almost take pleasure in there's, screwing with these. There's, know, there's some of that here in Utah too, but not, I wouldn't say it's rampant. The federal system's horrendous from what I've been told. I've never been in it. I've interviewed three or four people on my podcast that were in the federal system and they describe it as pretty horrendous. So it's a common yeah. theme. But uh, in Utah, at least in, in Gunnison, most of the officers were pretty humane. There were some that weren't. There were some that were looking for a fight and, and poking the bear and ca causing grief, but most of them weren't that kind of people. Do those guys last long or do they get yanked they, out? They actually kind of get promoted. Wow. It's not uncommon to see somebody that's kind of a jerk to move their way up. Not always, but it's not uncommon. Well, just farm animals, just what, you know. Yeah. Beat them right and get become the lead lead cowboy. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of odd, but it's the culture. It's not the people. It's the culture. The people, and there are a lot of officers that try to do things, that try to help and try to create programs and try to, and and most of the time they, they don't get promoted. You know, they don't. They it's lose the opportunity. Bucking the system. Mm -hmm. Crabs in a bucket. It's crabs in a bucket. That's such a weird mentality. <laughs> and I. And I guess because I guess, I've never had that, you know, just just exist and do the basic minimum. It's not in my nature. I can't do that. I've always taught to do more. I've been around people that were that way, and they just don't care. Just yeah, watch the clock, do my thing, punch the clock, and get out. And I'm just babysitting these animals. So, and you know, it wouldn't be so bad if they were cute, but they're grown men, so they're not even cute. But I, I wouldn't. You know, I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. They're really in a hopeless job. And, and the ones that try to go out of their way to help are people who don't want to be in a hopeless job and want to yeah, find... Yeah, I was just going to say that as an officer, you don't want to just be watching the sheep every day doing... Yeah. You want to have something to look forward to as well. Right. I can't imagine going to something... A dead-end job. ...job that you hated every day. And in, in central Utah, down in Gunnison, it's, it's really a pretty good-paying job. In Salt Lake, it's not so much... Although I think they've really improved the wages lately. But in, in, in Gunnison, if you work at the prison, you're getting paid pretty well for the area. A lot of those people are pretty productive people, but they just get there and... They just maybe see that it's, it's not worth... Yeah. There's no way I can move, right? I can write this ship. I, I, I'm going to tell you a story, and, and this is all speculation. Uh, we when I, worked, when I was there, we had three officers in our education unit. And one of them was a lady who was, became a good friend. Her son actually... Or excuse me, her brother actually played basketball for me. Really a good lady. Great officer. One of the best officers I, I worked with. Very down the line, but also very caring and compassionate. So, she, you know, somebody broke the rules. They, they were punished. They were disciplined. They were corrected. But if somebody, if, but he, she also did it with a little bit of kindness and a little bit of concern. She kept trying to get, become sergeant. And she would come in and talk to me. And she, there was exams and things she had to do. And she did very well on them. She's going to get promoted. She's going to get promoted. And she never did. And she never did. And she never did. And I was baffled at the time. I thought, who's here, who's here a better candidate than she is? Because she was a sharp gal. Um, 
I went, I've been going back in Mondays, uh, starting last April, to to work with inmates uh, Monday mornings, and she's a sergeant now. And I've also noticed that, but we were friends. You know, it's not anything at all inappropriate. We were just she would talk talk to me and. And I was kind of like, I mean, like her dad, I guess. She kind of confided in me a few things, and we talked about stuff. And and uh, now I've gone in, and she doesn't, she kind of avoids me, which I think was, pre- which I really took as kind of odd. She's a sergeant now. And I really think that once she got away from me, she got away from the education renegades, she was allowed to, to advance. And while she was with us and doing our, you know, trying to support us, she wasn't allowed I may be wrong, but I, that's sure the way it appears. It's odd, but it's true. The politics yeah. seem to destroy so many things. Yep. And pride. Pride and agendas. Agendas. Personal agendas are such a destructive thing, which I probably have right now. But <laughs> Well, it sounds like your personal agenda is not for your own gain. No, it's to open things it's up. To, and Transparency. To help, and to help these guys that you saw were human. And there's somebody's, they're your yeah. friend's kid, like my friend's that's coming out in April. He's 33, maybe 34 now. And the, the poor kid is not poor kid. I mean, make choices, but 12, 13 years he's been in and out. I mean, literally a third of his life is, but he's a decent human. Well, and he's not a monster. When he was high, that's when he was a monster. That, that brings us into the, the other piece of this that I think is huge. Uh, when I wrote my book, All My Friends Are Felons, uh, I, got, I retired in 2019 in the summer. And uh, it's kind of a funny story, but if you want to hear that story, you'll have to read the book. But I decided to write a book, and I just wrote down my stories. All I did is this experience, that experience, this experience, and I just wrote them down. I'm kind of sequen- put them in sequential order. I had a couple of inmates also write, so their stories are involved in, in, included into some of the chapters. But when I wrote that book, I had a chapter called Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. If you remember Mick Jagger, that's a famous mm-hmm. Mick Jagger phrase. And it talks about how our prison system, our prisons, if it weren't for sex, for, for pornography, drugs, and alcohol, our prisons would be empty except for the psychopaths. And obviously that's not completely true, but it is very mostly true. Because what I found uh, was that once these men were no longer, and they couldn't all blame it on that, and I don't, I'm not saying that's a blame or an excuse, but when these, once these men were no longer shackled in their addiction and they could think clearly, they were good people with good hearts, with kind hearts. With, they put up these huge fronts being tough guys because they have to do that in prison. They have to be tough guys and they have to be mean and rough and tough, but when they didn't have the addict problem, the drug problem, and you got past that that mask, you found a real person. And addiction is a tool to cover up trauma. Uh, and maybe it's not severe trauma, or maybe it is very severe trauma. But addiction is a tool to cover up trauma. Or maybe I should say alcohol and drugs is that tool. And then alcohol and drugs turned into addiction. And once a person becomes an addict, they become a liar and a thief and a cheat and a selfish and uncaring and victimizer, that's what they become. And I don't mean that rude. It's just, it happens to every single one of them. And as a result of that, the only thing that matters is getting their next fix, especially with meth and heroin and Coke and, you know, those kind of drugs. 
fentanyl. <laughs> the, the only thing that matters, it, their family doesn't matter, their wife doesn't matter, their kids don't matter. Uh, they sell, they just sell everything they have, including their own soul, for their next fix. And as a result of that, they commit crimes. They steal, they sell, they rob, they murder to get money. That's what they do. So we send these people to prison with these serious addictions. And we send them to prison. Many of them still stay, stay high in prison because there are lots of drugs. The ones that have a little better sense about them start pulling themselves away and become sober and become clean and become good again. But they still have an addiction because they, they haven't learned how to deal with their trauma. So, see, in prison, they don't have those traumas. They have different traumas, but they don't have the childhood traumas, the, the street traumas that they face. They don't, have to pay the, they don't have to pay the electric bill. They don't have to pay the rent. They don't have to, have to keep a job. None of those pressures are there. And so we just put them in a prison thinking they're going to fix themselves. And then we let them out of prison five years later, or two and a half years later, or ten years later, and we can't figure out why they don't know how to live a good life. And I, think, I don't know if I told you this on the air. I think it was before. It's like you, we have an, you have an old car that's kind of doesn't run very well. It's kind of beat up and rusty. And you go put it in the parking lot and leave it there for two and a half years. It's like going back and getting in that car and expecting it to run smoothly and all the dents and, and dings and rust is gone. You didn't hire a body man. You didn't bring in a mechanic. You didn't, you didn't get a tire guy. <laughs> you know, you just expect that car to magically change. And we send these guys to prison and we expect them to magically change. And when we're baffled when they get out, 95% of the people incarcerated in the state of Utah will be released from prison at some point. 95%. 72% will go back within five years. That's according to the 2016 Department of Corrections data. So we are succeeding 28% of the time. Now, that 28% is just men of sheer will who either have the background. Most of them grew up in a more stable, functional home situation. So when they finally get sober, they get out and they can make it. Most of them fit that category. Not all of them, but most of them. Either that or they've spent so much time in prison, 20 or 30 years, they just kind of finally come to themselves and say, I'm done with this, so I'm going to get out and I'm going to stay clean. But it's still, usually it's still hard. They get out and they usually go back in and out, in and out, in and out. And eventually at some point they say, I'm done. And they, keep, they stay out. But we, our system is so stupid. It's a stupid, it's a stupid thinking process that, 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 that is our system. And it's sad. Because they're not, do you think that's by design to I keep think, people coming? Is it, and I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but I've, you know, the, the profit, the prisons are a business to some extent, are they not? Um, they're not privately owned, are they? It's no. all state run. Yeah, they're still, state state owned businesses. But they're funded by, how are they funded? Taxpayer money. Taxpayer money. Yeah, it's, it's a, costs about $42,000 a year to house an inmate in Utah. For one human. Yeah, $42,000. You know, I've been, I've thought about that, but if, if that is the case, that's incredibly stupid thinking. Because we could empty the prisons in Utah today and completely eliminate those people. And we could fill them up in a month. Because there's that many more criminals out there that we could prosecute and put in jail. There's, it's, there, we are never going to run out of criminals. As long as we have drugs and alcohol, we will never run out of criminals. So I think that's pretty poor. <laughs> I use the word stupid again, thinking. I don't think there's any really validity to that. 
I think it's more of those people don't deserve anything. Those people don't deserve our help. Those are worthless people. Because what happens currently in this system is they throw them in the cesspool. And then about a year and a half before they're supposed to get out, they start talking to them about taking some classes. They take some programming classes, they call them, uh, which is taught by officers. So they're going in and listening to their enemy tell them how they need to start thinking for change, changing the way they think. Or they're listening to their enemy tell them how they need to be a kinder person. They're listening to their enemy trying to teach them how they've hurt so many people and they need to figure out a way to be better. And it's ridiculous so thinking. they're not going to listen to their enemy. <laughs> I wouldn't. Like, who the hell are you? Yeah. Why should I listen to you? What, what have you done? Because you're, you're hurting me. Yeah. So it makes no sense. Um, so then then the last six months, they a little more intense, and then they finally they kick them out on the streets. And that's the correction system. And they're proud as heck of it. They just, they have the mindset that these men are so broken that they can't be repaired. And they, they just don't put any, I don't want to say they put any, any effort to it, there are, and I, I speak generally, there are some very good officers. There are some good programs. The ATC, for example, brings a program into the Salt Lake Prison. It's a wonderful program. It's a vocational program that helps guys. And those programs generally are run by educators, private people, not by cops. There's cops there, but, uh, you know, the like our education system. But then there's a program for drug rehab, which they really need. But the ones in the prison are run by cops. Now, there are some therapists and some private citizens there working, but the cops have control of the system. And so those, those therapeutic communities, which are very effective on the streets because of the, the, the people choose to go, the people see value in what they're going, and the people aren't being monitored and p policed by their enemies. In the prison, they have about a 20 to 30% success, success, success rate. Where on the streets, for example, the other side academy, uh, it's a therapeutic community in Salt Lake, has a 70% success rate, crime-free, uh, drug-free, and employed after five years. So I don't think it's an intentional act. I don't think it's, oh, we got to keep employed. In fact, I'm sure it's not because they don't have enough beds for the inmates that we have. And it's always been the case. We've always been short of beds. I think it's, I think it's just that they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. And you know what? They might not deserve it. They've done terrible things, and they've hurt people. And maybe they don't deserve it, but you know what? Society deserves it. Their families deserve it. Their desire, the society deserves a 30% recidivism rate instead of a 70% recidivism rate. I, I, as a citizen, deserve to know that when these guys get out of prison, their normal is normal. Their value system is, is square to the world. Uh, their ability to achieve and improve and succeed and become a tax-paying citizen, just like the rest of us. They owe me that. And that's, that's who, if, if, the, if the inmate doesn't deserve that help, you can make that argument. But you can't make it for me or for you or for the other, the guys who lives across the street, who's living a good life, who's trying to make good choices with imperfections. But, you know, nothing felonous. I, I think it's just stinking thinking. I think it's just poor thinking, not thinking through to the end. The line from Shawshank Redemption, I'm sure you've seen it. Oh, right? Every yes. Great, great film when he says, Morgan Freeman says, I'm an institutional man. I couldn't, I couldn't make it on the outside. Do you think a lot of these guys are just so comfortable with that? Very that, true. That it's not going back in, it's at least familiar? 
is that like the devil you know versus it, like and if you if you've been in for ten years and you don't know what is how to behave on the outside, do some of these guys deliberately get back or do they just distill in their addictions and they're doing it not doing it on purpose? But... They'll, they'll get a parole date, and the only reason they want the parole date is to spend two weeks on the streets, looking for drugs, looking for women, and looking for victim victimized people. They fully expect to come back. They fully, they, they fully expect, here, hold my, they'll, they you know, have property. Hold my beer. Here, hold I'll, my, I'll be back in a Hold my beer, I'll be back. That literally happens. And, and you guys, guys that have come back in and have told you that? Yeah. The, the, the guys are going out. Oh, the, the, oh, 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 I had you got a parole date. Yeah, I'll be, I'll see you. Well, I'm leaving. On, I'm out. Da, 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 da. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. <laughs> my vacation. Yeah. It's my vacation. It, it is a vacation. It really is. And they have no intention of staying out of prison. And, and, and they're not all that way. A lot of them have good intentions to stay out, but they get out and they, they, they can't find a job. Because no one will hire. Because nobody will hire a felon. It, they don't have a driver's license. They're in, a halfway, they're in a halfway house. And the halfway house is there's more drugs and, and crime in a halfway house than there is in prison. And that's a lot. And so they find themselves, I got to survive. Well, I used to sell drugs. I can sell drugs. I, I, I tell a story on... My podcast, all my friends are felons. It's amazing how many people says, "Yeah, I, I'm gonna, I'll just start selling, and I'll pay my bills, and I won't use." And they do that for two, three weeks, or a month, or maybe two months. And next thing you know, some pressure hits, and they use, and then they're right back in it. Not that selling drugs is good, <laughs> but at least they're trying. <laughs> the only way they know how to make a living to survive to survive, and then the, and then they start using, and then it's back to the same spiral, death spiral that they were in before. So sales is not a good job. This is where the sales isn't a good thing. <laughs> if just start sell something else. So, you know, but uh, no, there are guys, and I would say most of them really do want to get out and stay out in their hearts. They can't. But there's a lot of them that just plan on coming back. Oh, I'm going to go. They think about all the girls they're going to go find and all the drugs they're going to use. Because even though there are drugs in prison, they're not as a, you know, they're not... All the time, every day stuff. They got to work. work they got to work. It. It's a little harder to get, but it's still there. Uh, yeah, and it's because their behavior, their thoughts haven't changed at all. They're, they're, they're just that car that's parked off in the parking lot for a couple, two and a half years, and nobody's worked on it. Nobody's helped it. So what's the solution? I'm sure you've thought about uh-huh. Like, what what do you, to, if, to stop, and maybe it's further back with families and and mental health or I don't know what, tell me I, this prison seemed like a band-aid. Well, all of those things would help going back, you know, when they're, when they're kids, most of these guys started when they're kids. That's another thing we don't realize is most of them started using, I, I know guys that were meth addicts at 10. Just because that's what they were. Around. That's what they were Parents around. around. Yeah. They were, or they were selling meth at 10. And by the time they were 12, they started using, you know, it's not uncommon. But in my book, there's a chapter called If I Were King, and it answers that very question. And that, that answer, since I started my podcast and started really jumping both feet back into this space, has kind of changed a little bit, but not really. It's my experience in my personal life, in the lives of my children and my friends and the people around me, and the lives of inmates, that change happens when we're ready for it. And being ready to have that change made at that time is important. I, I say when a person comes to themselves, referencing the prodigal son story in the Bible, when a person comes to themselves, they're ready to change. That requires choice. 
You cannot make me change. I can't make you change. But when you're ready to change, if I'm prepared to help you and provide you opportunity, it's going to make it easier for you. If when you're ready to change, I pull a rug out from under you and say, you're a dirtbag, go away. That just makes you angry. See, our system makes the inmates angrier and angrier and angrier. All They just get angry. And they're upset and they're mad and they hate. That's what this current system does. But if we had a system, let me just give you an example. Guy gets arrested for whatever crime crime might be. He goes into R&O. R&O is a scary place. What's that? Uh, receiving an orientation. It's the first couple months. They take you in and they tell you everything about this prison life. They sign, You sign a piece of paper. If you die in prison, where do you want your remains to go? You fill out this paper and give it to them. That's a heavy document. <laughs> that's that's serious. And every every inmate that goes to prison fills that out. And that's a that's kind of a come to Jesus moment. I mean, that's wow. They tell you they do all these other things. They they do analysis and I'm not sure what it is. Mostly they just put you in there to scare you because it's like Shawshank Redemption. It's like Alcatraz. At least the old one was. The new one's not. But in Draper, it was in Uina, one of the Uina, one of the Uinas, and the Uinas were the oldest existing housing units in the facility. So, you know, bars on the doors and tears and guys yelling. And I mean, just like the movies, just like the movies. Yeah. Anyway, they go in there, but but you go in there and then you get your assignment based on your, what happens to you or what you're told. Then you you are, you are given said, listen, you're going to general pop. You're going to go do the politic and you can do whatever you want. And whenever you want to don't, if you ever you want to change, if ever you want to grow, if ever you want to get out of general pop and make a better life for yourself, you need to apply. All you have to do is fill out a form. It says, I would like to change. That's submitted. And then you're given opportunity. You're given, I'm a big believer in self-help books. Based on your based on their profile, you're given a few self-help books to read. You start looking at them. You take a program, you take a course called Captain Your Story which is a life skills uh, class, a pattern, a way to pattern your life to succeed and be a, be a, instead of being a victim, to be a creator, instead of just blaming everybody else for your problems, taking over your life and choosing what you're going to focus on and what you're going to become. And they go through those courses and then they move through those courses and change starts to happen. Then they get moved to a different housing unit where they're not with the general pop anymore. And they're with other guys who are trying to change. So everybody, and as you move, if you, as you move through this, if a tiered program, you move farther and farther and farther up the ladder, if you will, to the point where you live with guys that are, are normal, that have value, that don't victimize, that have respect, that are kind, that are in creators, industrious, aren't using drugs, aren't aren't sitting around talking about their crimes, don't have pornography hanging in their cell. You, you're moving your way up the, up the line. You're choosing. Think about your life. How important is choice in your life? It's everything. And if you don't make choices, you can't learn. Isn't that true? Yeah. Well, these guys, they're never allowed to choose. So now we're starting to give them choices, and they're starting to learn. And they're, they're going to fail. They're going to get up there, and they're going to mess up. They might have to move back down a tier or two. Something might have to happen. There's still always consequences, just like with you and I. But then... They get to a certain point. They're living in a therapeutic community. They're drug-free, they're crime-free, and they're employed. 
just like they're the other side academy and they're inside, still inside the prison. You give the best jobs in the prison to the guys who are the top tiers. So you don't have to worry about them stealing and lying and cheating and doing their criminal stuff. They're just doing a good job and they're, they're good employees. But then when they get on the streets, they're ready to live a good life. Because they know how to contribute. and Yep. They learn how to live in a good society. And it really is that simple. It wouldn't take any more money. It wouldn't take any more house space. Uh, it would take a complete paradigm shift in the corrections community. That's all it would take because the inmates would readily do it. I've seen it. I go to Gunnison, I said, and, and do this, teach us Captain Your Story class. And the men we teach this class to are shifting to live in the same space all by themselves. They're requesting to, to move into Gale, to move into Ironwood, where other men who are taking this course are living because they're all on the same page. They're starting to move forward. They're starting to have hope. They're starting to believe in themselves. They're starting to see that they are redeemable. They're learning to trust each other, uh, to trust themselves, and on and on and on. And it would be a very simple process. And it would change. It would absolutely change corrections. And it makes sense. So why would they do that? Why would they do something <laughs> like that, right? Well, I want to get to, that's the next part I want to get to. I don't know if I, can't remember if I said this on the air, but I worked with three different, while I was working in the prison at eight years, I worked with three different heads of the prison, which are called the executive director. The wardens aren't, the, the wardens are over the prison, but the executive director are over the wardens. So they're the boss. They're the, they're the answer. Two of them, I think they saw the problems, but the machine was too big to handle, to tackle. The third one didn't think there was a problem, thought they were doing great. Last spring, uh, the governor has hired a man named Brian Red. And Brian Red played basketball for me 35 years ago. And so <laughs> it, was, it was kind of funny. It's like, hey, coach. I'm in this, I'm in this circle, and, and everybody's, hey, does anybody know Brian Red? A guy named Brian Red. Anybody know Brian Red? I'm going, well, I know Brian Red, but that ain't him. I, you know, so I said, no, I don't know. I don't know who it could be. My mom came over to dinner one day and brought the newspaper one Sunday. Brought the weekly newspaper from Sam Pete County. The former executive director was from Sam Pete County. And they had the picture of the former and the, and the new directors there. And I just picked up the, my mom, mom said, you don't want to read that. And I picked it up, started glancing, reading that. I glanced over his picture. Oh, my hell, that's Brian Red. <laughs> I immediately knew him, obviously. And, and so I went and met with him because I wanted to. He's a good, great, comes from a great family, very intelligent kid, really a great kid. I hadn't seen him for 35 years. So I wanted to go meet him, and I, I immediately saw the same person I knew when he was a kid, only much more mature and much more developed. And I quickly realized that he was going to move the needle. In fact, that's why I started my podcast. I was thinking, man, what, do I, what can I do to support him? And so in that summer, my son came to me and said, Dad, you got to do a podcast. I said, Dave, what's a podcast? <laughs> and he explained it to me. And three months later, we, we hired a company to produce our podcast, and we jumped in with both feet. And we did it to try to humanize these men who have, and women who have been through the ringer been at the dip, just the rock bottom of the criminal justice world and have come out on the other side successful, showing that it's possible, trying to humanize them, trying to help the general population realize that that's possible, feeling that that would help Brian in his efforts to, because 
I knew he was going to have a big machine to mess with. That's ironic. That's like he heard his nose must have been itchy because he doesn't call you. That's too funny. <laughs> that is funny. I have a meeting with him tomorrow. We so. got to call him out now. I'm going to tell him about that. That's pretty. That's hilarious. I hope you leave that on. The show. I'm, well, I definitely will. That's um, that's perfect. I need to turn my phone off. <laughs> um. Anyway, Brian's moving the needle. And he's over. He's over all, the whole system. The whole state. Yep. Every inmate in this state is in, under his care, and he is literally moving the needle in ways that no one thought possible. And he is changing. He is, Captain. Your story. We're working on, le- on legislation right now uh, to get some funding so we can, instead of doing this, a couple of classes here and a couple of classes there, we can do it larger scale, because it's all volunteer now, and you know you can only get so many people to, like me that's dumb enough to volunteer to do it. Uh, over any extended period of time. So he's that, and he's a little thing like taking pictures. They never allowed you, uh, people to take, you, didn't, you couldn't have a picture of your, of your husband or father that was in prison. It was against, it was against policy. Your family couldn't have a no. picture of you? No. If you were inside? Yeah, they couldn't have one that was taken while you were inside. I mean, you could have the one that your wedding picture or, you know, family vacation picture. But if you were an inmate, you could not give, there was no way to give them a picture of you. They'd come to visit you and see you and that's it. And he's, I know that sounds like a silly thing, but now he's allowed people to have pictures taken. No, that seems odd that that was never, Oh, it was and, a, and maybe I would think maybe, maybe someone inside wouldn't want their picture. Well, they, they've come to, they've come to accept where they are. Um, but yeah, they, they wouldn't let them do it. They wouldn't, and that sounds ridiculously silly, but it was some kind of security violation. And there, that's just one of probably 20 things that he's incorporated to allow them to be more human and to more and to humanize who they are. And I don't want to, I don't want to downplay what they've done. Uh, I really don't. I, they've done terrible things and they need to pay the price for that. But they also need to be for our sakes, if not theirs given the opportunity to be redeemed and to change and to grow. And I think Brian's doing that. And his boss is governor? The governor. Governor. His boss is the governor. Also from the same area, right? Uh, Isn't well, he governor from San Pete County? Yes, he is. Brian's from Monticello. Okay. Brian played for me down oh, there. That's right. right. And way down there. But I, I'm excited. I really, I didn't know that this would ever happen. And I'm really excited to have Brian Red to see the change. He's... He's changed the C-suite, completely turned it over. He's got people in there that have his vision. What is the C-suite? The, the executive suite in the in the Department of Corrections, the top tier. Okay. Is it his, his administration? His, his administration. His cabinet. His cabinet. He's completely turned that over, and he's brought in people that he trusts and he believes has his vision, and that's slowly working its way down. I know the warden in Salt Lake, I believe his name is Sorensen, is very well thought of. Um, and you're seeing, we're just seeing changes. We're just seeing changes and we're excited. So it needed to start from, not start from, but be represented at the top. Uh, yeah. And, and, and carefully disseminate it down. He's not a iron fist. He's not a guy who do this or go, do this or go. He's a, he's a guy who says, okay, we need to move in this direction. I need your support. I need you to see how this is going to help us, how this is going to help Utah, how this is going to help. Uh, the families of these people who are incarcerated, how this is going to help our neighbors. 
you know, I need you to see this. And he's, he's very good at selling his vision of what he wants. Well, that's, I have, I have some hope now for, I'm excited because it's a, a lot of darkness and yeah. Okay. Well, what haven't I asked you about this world that, <laughs> that you want to share? I, you know, Brian, I, <laughs> is he still I, trying to, I tell my, I tell my wife this all the time. Don't, or my wife tells people, don't get Mark talking about prison reform. Don't do it. You'll regret it. Because I just can't shut up. We could literally talk all day. And, and, and I think if I just share the last thing, I, our podcast's hope is to help people realize the need for change in the prison system and to support Brian Redd in the process of doing that. Uh, it's for all of us, all of our good. Maybe they don't deserve it, but society does. Well, just your show, the guys you have on there, seeing that well, this BYU student, you know, he got hooked on meth. I think one of your guys was, mm-hmm. he probably had more than one, who screwed up, Yeah, paid the price, came back out, and fixed it. Yeah, and put himself back on and, track. And there's hope in, you know, this fallen world that we're in, especially in our culture here in Utah, redemption. You know, it's the center, center of our culture. Literally, redemption Christ's atonement is the center of, of, of the Christian culture. And it doesn't stop at the prison gates. We want it to. <laughs> it would conveniently, we want it to conveniently stop right there. But it doesn't. And in fact, of all of the things that I've come to realize that's been powerful for me is that fact. These men are redeemable. They don't believe they are. But as soon as you start talking to them and working with them and getting them to open up and see a different way of thinking... They start to realize that they are redeemable, and then they want to be redeemed, and they want to change, and they want... It's amazing how many of the guys that we work with on Monday morning in Gunnison, their whole life is focused on now focused on service. They want to get out of prison and start a ministry to help kids or to help former felons, or excuse me, former inmates that are felons. They want to, they want to give back to the community. Uh, I, I got a lot of the guys that I interview have foster care homes and, and are working uh, addiction recovery space because they want to give back and they want to help and they want to show people that they can make it because they've lived it. So Well, and also the perspective of felons are all in the same category. You hear the word, it's all the same category. But it's broad. I know it. But, but our perspective out here on the street is all oh, felon. Can't have, mm, no, no, no touchy. No, don't, don't even give him a chance. And I, I worry. I wor- I had a guy working. We hired him to do some work here in my backyard, and he didn't. I don't think he served time, but he was a recovery. Well, I say recovering. He was an active meth addict, and I was nervous all the time about. And, and the dude was sketch. He was, he was not well. But you could see glimmers of him hating that lifestyle and wanting to get out, but was so far into it that I don't know whatever happened to him. Choices are gone. Yeah. Yeah. When you're, when you're controlled by a substance. And, and, and when they're like that, they're scary and they, you need to stay away from them. I, I don't think we should befriend every meth addict on the street. They are dangerous, dangerous, dangerous people. That's why we have police officers. Because they're not themselves. That's right. But when you can get them sober and then you can help them stay sober, then we have the real person back again. When I say come to, come to himself is an interesting phrase because if you think of the prodigal son, he left who he was. 
And he lived a different lifestyle and he lived in a different world. But then he came to himself, which means he came back to what he knew, to who he was. And I think the same thing happens to these men that change. They come to themselves. They, they become the good person that's inside of them. And most of these men still have that good person, and women still have that good person inside of them. And, and, and if we want to do the right thing as Christians and the right thing for our society and the right thing for these men's families, because we often forget that they leave children and wives often behind that are destitute <laughs> and that hurt people hurt people, we need to help them. And they want our help. They do. All right. How do people reach you? Uh, all my friends are felons.com. Uh, Mark, you can tell them at gmail.com or you can just go to the website and reach out. Uh, we have a Facebook page, All My Friends Are Felons. You can message us there. Uh, our, all My Friends Are Felons, we drop a podcast every Tuesday and Thursday uh, interviewing different people who have been to prison and are now out and successful. Uh, you can read my book, All My Friends Are Felons. At You can get it on Amazon. It's also on Audible. And we're there. Are you reading it? Am I reading? Audible? Yeah, I did. I you read did. it. And I kind of wish I hadn't because I don't do as good a job as, as a professional. But everybody said, Mark, if you're going to be in this space, you need to read your own book. So I did. <laughs> I've yet to read it. So that will be my next thing is to read your book. And in case someone didn't know, it's all my friends are felons. In case we didn't say that enough times, but well, thank you so much. This has been enlightening and eye-opening, and I feel like there's some hope now because you're involved. And now you said Brian Red for the state of Utah. Go get him. I, I, I really believe that the needle's going to start moving faster and faster, and it's because of Brian. What can... I do, or my neighbors do, or people that I know, my circle, what, what, if someone wanted to, like, how can I help? What can someone do? I think the first thing we all need to do is change a paradigm. And I don't know any other better way to do that than to go serve in the prison or in the jail. Go be a volunteer in the county jail or in the prison for one, for one year. Go in and do church service. Go in and do Alcoholics Anonymous. There's all kinds of ways you, you can volunteer in the prison. And they need volunteers. Is there? How would someone sign up for something like that? Just go to. How would they find? Go to, out? Go to the Department of Corrections website, and it talks about. There's a. There's a link that talks about volunteers, and you just follow that road until you get to, to what you need. But I think the paradigm shift is the biggest piece. We all need to look at this. We all need to realize that. Had I had I grown up, had I grown up where the first memory that I had was my dad beating my mom's boyfriend with a hammer. Or my mom not having a front door on her house and the DCFS comes and gets me and takes me away from my mom and I don't know why. Uh, and then me riding a, <laughs> riding a bicycle from Lehigh to Glendale, you know, running away and riding Redwood Road on a BMX bike as a, as a seven-year-old. Those are my first memories. How would I be normal? How would I be sane? <laughs> How would I survive? If I started selling meth when I was 10 years old because my uncle needed me to, to be a dealer, how would, I, how would I survive that? I think we need to realize the people on the east side, that the people on the west side, and I, again, I just use those as this, Utah Yeah, the, the bad side of the tracks, wherever the tracks yeah, may be. The other side of the tracks. They, they grew up in a different world than we did, and they don't have the advantages we have. And had I grown up there, I would probably be dead. Or in prison because I killed somebody. 
wouldn't that's my personality I'm a, I jump in with both feet and 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 so we need to have a little bit of empathy and we don't need to trust the method but we need to trust the man who's a former method we need to realize that he has good inside of him and he wants to change and he wants to become a better person right now we're trying to get some legislation passed to get some funding to, to do the captain your story model in the prison instead of volunteering it and you know doing it a little bit here and a little bit there doing it full speed uh, if you want to write a, a letter to your legislator your senator or your house representative and say hey look at this it'll cost we we spend $42,000 a year on an inmate this would cost an additional $500 one time expense and it would it would absolutely change the system so i think there's a couple ways Remember, redemption applies to all people. Perfect. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thank you all again for making it to the end. I want to once again thank our sponsors for this episode, the Legacy Group Real Estate and Gertson Clothing Company. Please visit their website at LegacyRealEstateUtah.com and Gertson.com. G-E-E-R-T-S-E-N.com. Thank you again for listening to The Parish The Thought Show. We know you have many podcast options and appreciate that you have chosen us. If you love what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us. And don't forget to share, like, and subscribe. If you hate what you hear, only tell us. You're still here? Click on the next episode for more from The Parish the Thought Show.